I'm going to start this morning in uh, Psalm 127. As you can tell, the kids and the youth are all on their way to their things. I wonder if it'll ever come to the point where we'll have to leave and let them have this room. <laughs> I'd be all right with that. Wouldn't you? Psalm 127. Verse 1. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh, but in vain. Notice that first part of the verse. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. You know, um, there are, uh, well, let me just say it the way that I've heard it quoted or referred to. This is not original with me, certainly. But... um, Someone once said that if you ask somebody to name four or five sermons that have changed their lives, well, most people can come up with a couple. But if you ask them the five people that have had the greatest impact on the change in their lives, that's easy. Well, Brother Hagin was one of those people for me. He's at the top of the list, and, and there's really only about three. And um, it's, it's kind of funny things have not much of anybody knows who he was anymore i guess he's been uh, with the lord for a number of years now but i found the truth of the word i heard the truth of the word when i was at a time where my life didn't have any direction i had suffered a disappointment in an area that i thought it was going to go and and um turned out to be a good thing but at the time that it happened i thought it was the end of my my world What's the point? Oh, woe is me. How can I go on? And all that other young people drama that goes along with it, you know. But I found a man that knew God. And uh, the people that remember him, the people that were acquainted with his ministry, have asked me through the years things about him that they either wondered about or assumed about him or, or whatever the case was. He's probably most known for the, the teaching that he did on confession, particularly using Mark eleven twenty three and 24. But there was an underlying character trait about Brother Hagin that, um, that I believe had a greater impact on me than even the messages that he taught. And I've heard thousands of those. Still do. I've got everything that uh, has been published on uh, tape, and I've digitized it. And I still have the opportunity to, to, uh, to listen. Notice I said everything that's been published. There are a lot of things that he said and did and preached that, that have not been made available to the public. Now, it would be wrong for me to have that information when it came from a place that hasn't made it public. So I'm certainly not claiming to have that information. <laughs> but I do. <clears throat> But here's my point. One of the things that, uh, that I learned from Brother Hagin and one of the things that he lived by, he lived and breathed this stuff. He lived and breathed the truth of the word. But he lived by this scripture, Psalm 127, verse 1. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. He taught me, and I, well, I say he taught me, I learned from, from watching the, the fruit, the result of what, the things that he did and how he operated in his life and in his ministry. He was always the slowest man to move that I've ever seen. And as a young man, that frustrated me. I appreciate it more now than you can imagine. I understand the wisdom of it now more than you can imagine. But Brother Hagin just wouldn't move unless he knew God was in it. We could have the best ideas in the world, and a lot of us young people around him came up with those great ideas, or thought we did. We thought they were great ideas. And Brother Hagin, even, even when in talking to him, there would be times where he'd say, boy, that sounds like that might work. And then two months would go by and nothing happens because he's still waiting on the Lord. The point is, there's a lot of things we can do in life. But the issue should be, what should we do? The issue with our time and our resources isn't even a matter of good versus bad because we can't commit ourselves to everything and so the test should be good versus best now I want you to notice something about this scripture and he always pointed it out 
when he would use it and when he'd teach from it. Notice it said, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. It doesn't say they don't get it built. It says they build it on their own. Now, what does the Bible mean when it's telling us about this, except the Lord build the house? How does that apply to us today? Well, it can apply in a lot of ways. For me, it mostly applies to waiting on the Lord, just like I learned from Brother Hagin and watched him do for years and years. Choosing the things that God wants you to do, because when God wants you to do them, there's an anointing, there's a grace, there's a power behind it. But a lot of times, and perhaps even most of the time, people are doing things that they've seen somebody else do and succeed at or something that works for them. You'd be amazed. Well, I think you would. Maybe you wouldn't. But I'm guessing that you'd be amazed if you knew how many organizations, uh, Christian organizations, church organizations, are trying to get everybody to come be a part of their movement. And the underlying assumption that they make, which is wrong, but they assume since it worked for them, it'll work for everybody just the same. And folks, the things that are going to work for you, the things God gives you to do, not what he gives the guy down the street. Now, if this is talking specifically about the Lord building the house, then we ought to have some kind of information in the scripture to identify what kind of house he wants to build. Well, look with me over to Matthew chapter 16. There's several scriptures in here concerning the work of God that I believe are applicable. You judge it for yourself when you hear. Matthew chapter 16, we won't read the whole story. <clears throat> but Jesus, Jesus is standing at a place in Caesarea Philippi. He's standing at a location where there's um, um, a mall worth of idol worship and stuff like that. It's a place, and you can still visit there today. It's a place where you can see where the, the, the things were cut out of the rock. There's a, a mountain or a hill right behind it, and things were cut out of the rock. This one is uh, worship to Dionysus. This one is worship to Artemis. This one's uh, an idol dedicated to Apollo or some other god. It was a, a one-stop shopping for idol worship. And Jesus, at that, in that setting, asked his disciples, he said, Who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're Jeremiah and some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the other prophets, which would be reincarnation and God's not into that. That's not the way things work. But then he asked him, who do you say I am? Peter answers and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds to that and says, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my father, which is in heaven. Verse 18 he says, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now here it's talking about the same thing that Psalm 127 did. It's talking about the Lord building the house. And Jesus said that he would build the house. He, and only he, would build the house. Now I want you to see a couple of other things. Let me read to you from First uh, Peter chapter 2. Peter writing to the church said, you also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. Except the Lord built the house. The labor in vain to build it. You are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. He said, for we know that of our earthly house, talking about the flesh, of this tabernacle were dissolved. We have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We became uh, <clears throat> acquainted to a family member. We became acquainted with a young lady who had grown up in Hollywood and, and uh, had been a, a teenager an actress when she was a teenager in certain roles, popular shows and that type of thing. And um, she and, and the, the family member wound up getting in the fast track for destroying their lives. They get hooked on drugs and a lot of stuff. Came to the, really the point of death or destruction for, for both of them. But they made some right choices they got themselves clean and sober. 
And there was a marvelous, just a miraculous turnaround that took place in both of their lives. I'm not sure they ever married, but they were living together. And we tried to minister to this young lady, well, both of them really, but her particularly. And it was, it was a, a strange situation because every time you talk about the things of God, she had agreed like she already heard and already knew and was acquainted with the stuff and, and so forth. But then there were so many other things that she had mixed up in her spiritual, what she called her spiritual journey. Long story short, she wound up leaving the husband slash boyfriend, whatever, whichever it was. And um, moving in with, living with, I don't know any other way to describe it someone that had been a friend of hers as a child who was born female. But she transitioned to becoming a male and now they're together, just together. And it's, it's, such, a, it's such a sad thing, but it was such an instructive thing for me because she's got everything in the world all mixed up together. <clears throat> see in, in her experience or uh, as she's revealed to us God's the same as crystals or Buddhism or any other number of things this gender fluidity issue that she's now in the middle of firsthand. it's all God it's all the same thing how do you tell somebody that those things are not equal? How do you convince people that things are not equal? There's a, a story in the Old Testament that I believe has a lot of spiritual significance for us. Solomon built God a temple. And the Bible goes into great, great detail, minute detail, about all the, the uh, furnishings and the, the articles of, of um sacrifice and all the other things that were part of the the, uh, the temple even down to the, the the smallest detail the bible says over and over and over again that solomon overlaid those things with pure gold not just gold pure gold and then he made this and he overlaid this with pure gold and then he made this or had it made and this they overlaid that with pure gold and it's, it speaks dozens of times about the things that were created and overlaid with pure gold now, folks, God's not impressed with gold. It has no specific value for him. He uses it, uses it as asphalt in heaven. If we made something out of asphalt or dedicated asphalt to the Lord, what a big deal. Well, gold is the same way to God. Gold doesn't mean any more to him or isn't any more precious to him than, than something else would be or anything else would be. But it is to us. The precious nature, the valuable intrinsic value that it has as perhaps the most precious metal on the earth indicated or showed, gave an example of the respect and the reverence that Solomon had for the temple of God. But it's not just about what's pretty or what's costly. It's about the attitude of the heart. Because you remember Jesus walked through Herod's temple and the disciples were, were just blown away by the beauty and the wealth and the um, furnishings of Herod's temple and so forth. And there's a probability that Herod, trying to make peace with the Jews and be a uh, go-between between the Jews and the Romans, there's a probability that he spent more on, the, on Herod's temple, the second, not the second temple, the third temple, than Solomon did on the first one. But you remember, Jesus wasn't impressed. When the disciples brought these things to his attention, Jesus said, there's nothing going to be left on top of it. One stone won't be left on top of another with this one. One of the reasons why he was specifically making that charge or, or um, well, really told how things were going to be was because gold was used by Herod in the mortar between the stones. Just as a sign of, this is how costly this building is. This is how much we're doing for God, so to speak. And so when the Romans came and sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, they took every rock off of the other one 
to get the mortar to, to extract the, the gold from it. So it's not just the value of the temple or the money that was spent on it. It's about the attitude. The pure gold in Solomon's temple reflected his respect and reverence toward God. That wasn't the case with Herod's temple. Well, after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king. And he spent a little bit of time establishing his kingdom, but his heart wasn't really in it. He was trying to get the people on his side. And finally, over the tax issue, the people were crying out for tax relief. And uh, the elders that uh, worked with Solomon and helped him tried to help Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and said, you need to be easier on the, the people than your father was. Well, he doubled down, listened to the young people that were his advisors, and he doubled down and, and said, your taxes and your burden is going to be greater under my rule and reign than it ever was under my father's. Well, that led to the, the splitting of the 12 tribes of Israel. Nine and a half went to the northern kingdom called Israel. Two and a half went to the southern kingdom called Judah. Well, after the, um, the division of the, the 12 tribes, the king of Egypt waltzed into Israel under Rehoboam's reign and just sacked everything. They didn't even have to fight. Rehoboam didn't, didn't uh, offer any resistance to speak of at all. And so the king of Egypt just took all these things that were, had been made by Solomon, not only for the temple, but also how he had furnished his own house. And Rehoboam replaced the things that were stolen. But there's a big difference in what he used and what Solomon used. Solomon used pure gold on everything, showing his respect for God. Rehoboam replaced these things with brass, which is a mixture of copper and zinc. Now, it's shiny. It looks like gold, but it's not. And folks, I think that's what a lot of people do in their spiritual lives. They mix up a lot of different things together, and they think it's all the same. And it's not. When Jesus said, I'll build my church, and when Psalm 127 says, that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that builds it, he's identifying some things very specifically. We know for a fact that God is in the business, that Jesus is right now building a spiritual church, a spiritual house. What should that look like? Let me approach it from a different angle. What's the most important? Let me ask this question. What's the most important thing that someone, anyone that's been born into the kingdom of God or been in the kingdom of God for a long time, what's the number one thing we should want for them to have? If Jesus is building a spiritual house, and the Bible says he is, then he has to use spiritual tools. John 6, 63 says, the flesh profits nothing, but the words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Turn with me over to John chapter 8. I want you to see something else Jesus said along these same lines. We'll start in verse 31. <clears throat> well, I'm going to have to back up a little bit. <clears throat> Let's start in verse 28. Then said Jesus unto them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then shall you know that I am he. That I do nothing of myself, but as my father has taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is he is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And as he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. Please notice he's not talking to the Pharisees. He's not talking to the religious leaders. He's talking to the people that have just made a commitment, heart commitment, action taken. We don't know. 
we do know that it says that a lot of people believed on him when he said these things. And, of course, it goes back to the things that he had said previous to where we began to read as well. But notice it said, then said Jesus to these Jews which believed on him. Here's the instruction that he gives to the believers. Now, they couldn't be born again because he hadn't paid the price yet and been resurrected from the the dead. But they're in line for these people that, that talks about believed on him are certainly in line for they're eligible for salvation, for righteousness, for being made righteous and having their sins remitted or done away with, literally. Just as much as the disciples and just as much as those that followed him, the women and Mary, his mother that followed him and so forth, they're in line for everything that God has intent to fulfill through the sacrifice of Jesus and certainly has fulfilled from our perspective looking back. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now, folks, since the Bible tells us that Jesus is building a spiritual house, since the Bible tells us that the word of God is spiritual, the words that I speak unto you, Jesus said, their spirit and their life. If we know that the scripture in Psalm 127 verse 1 is true, and it is, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Then the building that he's talking about, the building of the church that the gates of hell shall not prevail against has got to be connected with the word of God. Got to be. In other words, the tools that Jesus is using to build a house has to be the word of God. Well, what is that house going to look like? John chapter 4 tells us about the woman with the, the, uh, at the well of Samaria who asked Jesus about some spiritual things. And Jesus responded in a way that made her believe. He told her something about her married life. And she understood that he was a prophet. And so she asked a question about worshiping God. There's a lot more to the story than we'll go into. But she asked a story about worshiping God where What's the manner? What's the the place where it should happen? And so forth. Jesus responds to her in John chapter 4, verse 24, I believe it is, that God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now think about what that means. That means if we're worshiping God in some other way, other than what he identifies in spirit and in truth, we're trying to build our own house. We might get something built, but it'll be all, everything will be in vain if it's apart from the word. They that worship God, he said, must worship. It's not his suggestion. It's a, it's a, a requirement. Those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, Paul's the only one that gives us the definition of what that is. Turn with me over to to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. You remember where we read a minute ago in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, you're a spiritual house. God, your lively stones being built up into a spiritual house to offer sacrifices to the Lord, a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Well, what sacrifice is he talking about? Paul tells us right here. Paul tells us what sacrifice he's looking for. Paul tells us what worshiping in the spirit is, and it's totally different from what most people are, are doing, thinking that they're full, excuse me, thinking that they're fulfilling that, that requirement. Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. You're built up a spiritual house to offer sacrifices. There's a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices unto the Lord. What sacrifices are there? There's only two sacrifices that the Bible talks about in the New Testament. One is the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips, giving glory to God. And the other is doing something with your body. That's a whole lot easier to lift our voices in the sacrifice of praise, offer the fruit of our lips, than it is to live as a sacrifice in this earth. Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, that you 
by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. King James says reasonable service. Nearly every other translation says either spiritual service or spiritual worship. Paul is talking about by the Holy Ghost. We can say it this way. The Holy Ghost gives us the definition of what's worshiping in spirit and truth really is. It's presenting your body a living sacrifice. Now, it goes further in verse 2 and tells us this is a key element if you're going to live up to that. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may experience, prove or experience what is that good, perfect, good, acceptable, and perfect will of God the Father. You want to know God's will in your life? You're going to have to renew your mind to the word and present your body a living sacrifice as the word says to. No other way to do it. No other way to do it. Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they're life. Jesus said, upon this rock, the knowledge that he's the son of God, he would build his church and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. That has to mean if he's building a spiritual house, he's got to use spiritual tools, which he identifies as the word of God. Jesus said to those that believed on him in John chapter 8, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples? And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So he's got to be talking about knowing the, word, knowing the truth, which is knowing the word. Jesus said in John seventeen seventeen, when he was praying for the church, he said, Sanctify them according to thy truth, Father. Thy word is truth. So if we're worshiping in spirit and truth, then we've got to be worshiping according to the word. Now, Jesus makes a distinction between believers and disciples in John chapter 8. He makes a distinction between believers and disciples. He told the ones that believed on him, if you continue in my word, then you're my disciples. Now, what did Jesus say in the Great Commission that our job was? Go and make believers or disciples? He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all men. Making disciples of all men. Okay, well then how does the word of God help us in our life? How does the word of God build us up? How does the word of God bring the the blessings of God, the deliverance of God, the freedom that we have in Christ? How does it bring any of those things to us? There's only one way and that is by faith, which the Bible identifies as believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. So what do we know? We can conclude without a shadow of a doubt That the house that Jesus is building, the spiritual house that Jesus is building, the church that he's building that the gates of hell cannot prevail against is a church, is a people that speak his word. There are people that are doers of the word. That's what living sacrifice means in Romans 12, 1. It means to be a doer of the word. It means we're a people that elect and determine to speak the word of God and to live by the word of God. Now, concerning this this idea, which is pretty prevalent throughout the modern-day church, of mixing things together, it's important for you to understand that every move of God can be identified by the worship meaning the songs that they sing. It's always been that way. The Reformation Reformation was earmarked by the hymns that came out during those days. In the 60s and early 70s, the charismatic move was identified by spiritual songs. And it's interesting that even in Paul's day, I think we overlook these things sometimes because we have in our minds how things work today and and what we're familiar with today. But even in the days of the early church, the church was known by its singing. It was known by the music that it sang. You remember in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talked about submitting yourselves one to another and submitting yourselves unto God. He called this being filled with the Spirit. It's a play on words that literally means be being filled or We might say stay full of the Spirit. One of the things that he said was an earmark of that is speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. He said virtually the same thing to the Colossians, Colossians 3.16. Well, what did the early church know about spiritual songs if they weren't singing them? He didn't have to describe them. He didn't have to identify, now I'm going to coin a new term here, spiritual songs. But here's what it means. The church at Corinth that had every spiritual gift in manifestation, it had from a a visible appearance standpoint the greatest move of God of any of any of the other churches. They didn't come behind in any good gift. They had it all. But there's two things that I want to bring to your attention. One is... 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, I believe it is. Paul then says, how is it then, brethren? He's talking about order in the church services. He said, how is it then, brethren, that when you come together, every one of you has a psalm, has a song, has a doctrine, has an utterance, or whatever? What songs did they come to church with, if not spiritual songs? Now, in the midst of a place that had the move of God without measure, I'm not sure that's the the right way to say it, but you know what I'm talking about. The church that had a, a greater manifestation of the Spirit than any of the other churches that we have record of, along with the things that they had, and there were a lot of good things about the church. One thing is identified very specifically. They didn't know the difference between the unction of the Holy Ghost and the work of the devil. That's a thought. They didn't know. Paul had to write to him and tell him, nobody can say that Jesus is the son of God except by the Holy Ghost, the revelation of the Holy Ghost. Just exactly as Paul did in Matthew chapter 16. But then he also had to tell him, nobody can say Jesus is accursed if they're moving by the spirit of God. Why wouldn't they know that? Why would Paul have to tell them Hey, the move of the Spirit you've got is good, but you've got a lot of the stuff mixed in there with it. And they didn't know. Now, if we came in from the outside just to visit one of the services that Paul was uh, addressing before they got things back under control, if they ever did, and we're not too sure about that. But if we visited one of those church services and saw the manifestation of the Spirit that seemed to be a regular occurrence in the midst of them, we'd walk out of there and say, wow. If we were spiritual and understood some things about that, as I would hope we would be, then we'd be amazed at the move of the Holy Ghost. But they still had no clue what part of it was the Holy Ghost and what part was not. They didn't know what part was the manifestation of the Spirit as opposed to the devil putting on the show. They didn't know. Well, shouldn't we know? Paul's trying to get them to the place where they can know. We're not sure they ever took his advice or followed the directions that he gave to them. But he's trying to let them know. He's trying to teach them by the word of God to come beyond the place of just being believers to being disciples. Well, as I said, every move of God has its own music. It's distinctive to whatever way the Holy Ghost seems to be moving. The healing revival in the 40s and early 50s had their own music. The charismatic revival of the 60s had its own music. The Reformation had its own music. Any and every other move of God you can find specific songs that they sang as a result of the manifestation or the outpouring of the holy ghost but there's also another element about this that you need to be aware of in the songs of each move of god were the beginning steps for when things got off track in other words through the songs which originally started as given by or inspired by the holy ghost to add to the move of the spirit. The songs of a move of God are like wind for your sails. 
without the sales, it won't help much. It won't make much difference. But God seems to provide that. And then the worship of those moves of God filled the sales and moved things forward. But when the music starts getting off track, that's where the signs begin that bring about an end to that particular move. Now, why would the songs be the first place that you'd notice things going awry? Because the songs that are given by the Spirit, the songs that identify the moves of God and the work of God in the earth or in the, in the church, are always songs that are based on the Word. You may not know it, folks, but the song, the song, the hymn, I should say, Amazing Grace, was such a departure from some of the other singing, some of the other worship or means of worship through music that the church had ever known. We're used to it. I think most people's attitude toward it is, well, can we jazz it up a little bit? But when the hymn was first written by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, the point was the word that it was speaking. The truth of the word that came forth. It seems that if you can keep the word of God in the songs, then the move of God can be extended. But if not, there's no anointing, there's no life. Now we see some of the same things going on around, going on around us in the modern day, but I don't think many people connect the dots. Let me give you an example. There is uh, a church that God is moving greatly in. No complaints, no criticism, no, I have nothing but good things to say. And it's been going on for several years now. I don't even know how long, but several years. But now some of the music, because music became such a big part of it. Now some of the music is starting to go off the rails where the word is concerned. I don't say this to draw attention to any one person. I'm not judging anybody's heart. It's not my place. He's not my servant. And I would assume, rightly so I believe, that he's just wanting to add to the things that God is already doing. The intent is correct. It's right from his heart. But there's a song that came out not too long ago. Or, well, I heard about it not too long ago. It may have been out 20 years. I don't know. I don't keep up with what's going on with everybody else too much. I'm trying to figure out what, what house the Lord wants me to build. Which direction he wants me to go. But there's a song that came out titled Reckless Love. pretty song but do you remember in the old testament how god identified himself to moses out of the burning bush he identified himself as the i am jesus called himself the i am on one occasion as well now folks god called himself the great i am not the great i do which means everything about god is a function or a result or fruit of who he is, not just what he does. Which means if reckless love is the way God loves us, then God is reckless. Anybody want to try to make that argument? There's no positive to recklessness. Recklessness is foolishness in one way or another. Well, apparently... And again, I'm working on what people tell me. But apparently, there were others that called this into question. And so the author had to put something online to explain, here's what I mean by that, and here's, here's why we wrote the song, and so forth. And, and that's fine. You know, skin off my nose one way or the other. But you can't find a spiritual foundation for recklessness on the part of God. You just can't. 
and I regret without even knowing who the individual is, I regret that the position that was taken was in defense of something that's unscriptural. Well, here's my question. How did he not know? And I'm just using it for an example. I could use a thousand others, maybe some concerning you and me. But how could he not know? There's only one possible answer for that, and that is he didn't know the word well enough to stick with what it says. Now, there's a thousand things you can say about the love of God. It never ends. It never changes. It overwhelms us according to his goodness and mercy. There's a lot of ways that you could go about this. But reckless isn't one of them. Will it have an impact on anything? I don't know. Will it change anything in the church or in the move of God that's going on in that particular church? I don't know. But if that's the beginning of others that come out after, then that move of God will wane. It'll come to an end. Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. That goes back to Psalm 127, verse 1 again. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Didn't say they didn't get it built. But they built it their way instead of letting God build it his way. I don't want to do that, do you? I don't want to mix other things up together with the things of God. I never have understood, and, and this is a part of Brother Hagin's influence on me, I guess, But I never have understood why people feel like they have to say it their own way. Is the way the Holy Ghost says things not good enough? But the church develops their own manner of speech. They develop their own catchphrases and buzzwords and and so forth, especially nowadays. So that they can be unique. Well, is that what God's after? You know, it's funny, but in the 1980s, mid-1980s, early to mid-1980s, there was a, a movement that was going on called the Joshua Generation. And the premise behind that was Moses is dead, meaning the old ministers. Moses is dead. God's through using them. Now he's going to use us young people, young ministers, the Joshuas of our day. And do great things. Go beyond where our fathers went. Well, like I said, that came about in the early to mid-1980s. And the person that I heard, well, the couple, that I heard preach that the most, Brother Hagin had to teach in healing school during that period of time. And they came right out with it. They just flat out said, we're the Joshua generation. The elder ministers are not who God's going to use. He's going to use us young people. And folks, I think, this is just my thinking, but I think this idea of mixing things up together, substituting brass for gold when it comes to worship of God, substituting brass for gold when it comes to obeying the word and presenting yourself a living sacrifice, I think that's a young person's tendency. Well, of course, it was a young couple, and God was using them in great ways in ministry, doing some great things with them. But they preached it, that this is the Joshua generation. Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land, but we're going to go in. We're going to be the ones to lead everybody in. And it wasn't but a matter of a few years that the man wound up dying of a drug overdose The woman is still alive. She still loves God. She remarried. But her life has been racked with sickness and disease. For at least the last 20 years that I know of. There's a tendency for young people to think that they're going to be able to do it all. Now folks. Now that I've kind of switched categories. 
between the young people and the old people. It's more obvious to me now than ever before that the older ministers need the enthusiasm and the zeal of the young ones. But the young ones need the wisdom and the stability of the older ones. I wonder if Timothy ever got to the place. Well, I even wonder if Joshua ever got to the place where he was ready for Moses to go off the scene so he could be in charge. What an idiotic thing that would be for him to take, position to take. There's a move of God going on in the church in this time, folks. There's a move of God that will intensify. There's a move of God that will show and reveal and demonstrate signs and wonders and miracles. But we're going to have to be careful not to mix anything else with it. We're going to have to be careful to make sure that it's word-based, beginning to the end. We're going to have to be careful to make sure that it stays pure gold in our eyes. You know, the, the, the beginning point for any move of God is reverence. Every move of God starts off with reverence for God and respect for his word. I don't know why some people feel like you need to go further than that. What's greater than that? But, of course, it's experience. It's things that are happening around and in the midst of those moves of God that cause people to lose perspective. In the Azusa Street Revival, it started in 1906. There was a move of God that started with the, the people getting filled with the Spirit. There were three people filled with the Spirit in 1906 in a city in Los Angeles, California, that sparked a landslide. That was considered a landslide because nobody had seen anybody filled with the Spirit at that point. There were no churches that were preaching being Spirit-filled. There were no churches that were preaching the benefits of speaking in tongues and explaining any of it. There were, there, nobody did. I'm sure there were things that were going on in other parts of the world, but in America, Nothing. There was a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas that was started the year before Azusa Street Revival took place. And somebody just on their own during the middle of a prayer meeting began speaking out in other tongues. Well, they were ostracized. They weren't welcomed. They were ostracized. And in the next place we see something happening in this country was in Azusa Street the following year. There was a man that wound up being in charge of it by the name of William Seymour. Now, he was not one of the main speakers. He would speak from time to time, but he was not one of the main speakers. And this Azusa Street Revival started with three people getting filled with the Holy Ghost and turned into a period of, of two and a half years, I think it was. Three services a day, constant ministry, Great signs and wonders, healings took place in great measure. People got filled with the Holy Ghost in the hundreds probably. Still, even in our thinking, it wouldn't be considered to, to be as significant as it turned out to be because we're used to different kind of numbers and expectations and so forth. But Brother Seymour talked about some of the things that were going on in the Azusa Street Revival and did uh, talked about it while it was happening during those two and a half years. And he said this. He said, we've seen a lot of manifestations that we know are of the devil. That sounds a lot like Corinthians, the church in Corinth. He said, we've seen a lot of things that we know are not God. He mentions what some of them were. He said there was one lady that, that came to the service and after we began to worship and praise God, all of a sudden she fell on the floor and started writhing around, slithering like a snake. 
Now, folks, I admire the group not running and heading for the hills. Stuff like that would freak most people out. Maybe you and me. But he said this. He said there were a lot of utterances. There were a lot of people that were giving messages or speaking out as they thought by the Holy Ghost. But it didn't line up with what the Word said. He said this. He said, we found that when we tried to stop those things, the Holy Ghost quit moving. He likened it to the Old Testament story of when David was bringing the ark up to Jerusalem. One of the people that were walking by the cart, the ox cart, I guess the cart hit some kind of bump or whatever it was. And so the, the fellow beside him, good man, noble man, it identifies that he was a, a man of excellence, a man of character, a man that loved God. But he reached out and tried to steady the ark, and he fell dead instantly. Now, that seems a little hard, doesn't it? But God never commanded the ark to travel by ox cart. It was supposed to be carried by the priests on staves through the rings on the, that had been built into the ark. Well, he used that illustration. He said, whenever we tried to steady the ark, Holy Ghost would quit moving. Well, then what are we supposed to do? What should our position be? Well, folks, the only answer the Bible gives us is to know the truth of spiritual things, to give ourselves to spiritual things so that we know what's right and what's wrong. And don't give the devil any place by drawing attention to what he's just done. But to leave it alone and let the things of God swallow it up. Just like Moses' snake swallowed the the magician's snakes in front of Pharaoh. I have great, 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 great expectation for the time that we live. We're going to see things that we've never seen before. We're going to see things that other moves of God have seen. But we're going to see some things that they didn't see. We're going to be left in some situations wondering. Because the Bible talks about signs and wonders. You know what a wonder is, don't you? It's something that makes you wonder. And the only way we're going to know about some of these wonders is to be so full of the word of God that we can hear the voice of God and know what his word says so that we can rightly divide the truth. Rightly divide the truth. I'll go back to my other question, my earlier question. What's the one thing that we should want every believer to have in their experience, their spiritual journey, so that they can become disciples? Folks, the answer is a hunger for the word. A hunger for the word. If I could give my kids anything, if I could have made the decision early on as soon as my kids were born, what's the one thing you want them to have in life? I'd have to say a hunger for the word. I can give them knowledge about God. I can give them the information that the Bible gives us. I can teach those things, but you can't teach a hunger for God. Brother Hagin had the impact on me that he did because he taught me to know God, but I had to be hungry. He didn't teach me or he didn't impart to me some kind of hunger. Now, the things, uh, the, the beauty of spiritual things is the more you give yourself to the things of God, the more hungry you grow. But that initial spark, nobody can give you. That initial hunger has to come from the inside. That beginning point comes from you and your relationship with God, not from somebody else. If I could give you anything, if I could give the people of this church, any and everybody in this church, one thing, that one thing would be a a hunger for God. Because the knowledge of spiritual things does you very little good unless you're hungry for it. 
because then it just becomes information. But Jesus didn't say go make converts. Go give out information. Jesus said go make disciples. Disciples are those that are hungry. And that hunger drives them to continue in the word. And that word brings them to the knowledge of the truth. And then that truth applied, believed in the heart, spoken with the mouth, brings freedom. That's what Jesus died for. Jesus didn't tell his disciples, well, now the price has been paid. So just get as many people to make a commitment to me as possible. Then when we get to heaven, we'll sort it all out then. No, he said, go make disciples. And he identified, he defined discipleship as those that are continuing in the word. That's what these elements represent, folks. These elements represent the body and the blood of Jesus, which he said he gave for us so that we could be in the same place as him, the same place with the Father, the same place, position of righteousness. He offered his body and his blood for us so that we could be hungry for the things of God and pursue those things of God according to what Jesus builds in us as individuals so that we do the same works that he did. That's what Jesus made available for you and me. Not just some fire escape so that you miss hell and the tortures thereof but so that you could be everything that he was here on the earth that's the place that he made for us and that comes from being spiritually hungry let's pray father we love you we recognize and we believe that you're building your church And you're building it on the word in such a way that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Thank you, Father, that we're more than conquerors. The greater one lives in us. All authority here on the earth is given to us in the name of Jesus. But, Lord, we realize our part is to be hungry. Our part is to be in pursuit of that which is good and acceptable in your sight. Teach us, Lord. Help us. Prompt us. Encourage us. Urge us. Do whatever it takes to be done to give each and every one of us a hunger for you like we've never had before. Like we've never had before. We are hungry for you, Father. I believe everybody that's gathered in this room is hungry for you. They've come to learn the truth so they can be who you want them to be. But we need the help of the Holy Ghost to make that happen. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, in advance for stirring in us maybe what we once had but lost stirring in us a desire to know more. Paul said this one thing he did, putting those things behind, forgetting those things that are behind, he pressed forward to the high calling of Jesus to hit the mark. Paul said the one thing that he wanted after counting the accolades of the earth is nothing. He said, the one thing I want is to know you. That's our desire too, Father, to know you like never before. In Jesus' name, amen. There are um, I come into different services with different expectations. This was one that I have been impressed for the last several days 
was a really important one. I don't know why. I don't even know how. Because preaching that we should keep things pure based on the word seems like the most basic thing that there is to say. But I believe that something about this service, certainly not me, but I mean something about the Holy Ghost and the way that he directed us to go this morning is going to have an impact on all of our lives in a greater way than maybe we know now. Father, we love you. We worship you. We magnify your holy name. We thank you that you order our steps and you guide us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.